0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. Oh man, the White House spoiled all the fun. No sooner did word leak over the weekend. That Ron Klain would be stepping down as Joe Biden's chief of staff. That There was, you know, this great guessing game was starting, a bunch of other names was put forth, people floating their own names, people getting other people to float their names. There was a little bit of a debate about should Joe Biden pick a politician, somebody who actually run for office, more of a peer, or should he pick somebody who's more of a behind-the-scenes mechanic? And then, within 24 hours... The name of Klein's successor was also leaked. So it, it completely and totally destroyed our ability to engage in mindless speculation about something we were going to find out about anyway. I'll get to that. I'll leave it as a little bit of a tease. Uh, hey, you know, it's really funny watching uh, former Trump people, many of whom are planning or plotting or at least imagining presidential campaigns, uh, raining on each other's parades, I will say, as a... Uh, Polite way of putting it. So Mike Pompeo has a book out, and he's gotten into a spat with Nikki Haley, and now he's gotten into a spat with John Bolton. You'll remember the former National Security Advisor who did his own book, and Bolton is hit back because it's just hard to follow. In Pompeo's book, he says that Bolton should be in jail. Why? Because of uh, allegedly super-secret classified information that was contained in Bolton's book. But Bolton rightly points out that his book went through an arduous four-month national security review. Um, And a lot of things were taken out. It's exactly the way the process is supposed to work because Donald Trump was so mad at him, he fired the guy who did the review or was involved in the review and got somebody else to do it and and again tried to block the publication, and it did not work. Let me pause here for a brief uh, acknowledgement that— this is Monday, and I hope you had a good weekend. And I hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. We had so much to deal with uh yesterday, and I will talk about some of that as we go on. You know, when I saw this little item about Ron DeSantis getting into some sort of fight with the National Hockey League, I said, Oh, you know, there he goes again. The governor is just trying to sort of find new targets for his culture war. And then I read a little further. So the way the story is framed is like, well, the NHL is, you know, taking the high road. It doesn't want to get into a spat with the governor of Florida uh, who accused the Hockey League of being discriminatory. And then you read a few more paragraphs down, and DeSantis is, is totally right. The, there is an event, or was, uh, going, there is going to be an event before the NHL All-Star Game in February. It will be in Florida. I don't know that there's that many people playing hockey in Florida, but nonetheless. And when the NHL put up um, a, a promo for this, I guess, on LinkedIn, here's what it said. Participants, they're trying to recruit younger people to be interested in playing hockey. Participants must be 18 years of age or older, based in the U.S., and identify as female, black, Asian, Pacific Islander, Hispanic, Latino, indigenous, LGBTQIA+, and or a person with a disability. Veterans are also welcome and encouraged to intend. What? Uh, come on. Is it so a league spokesman says the wording of the post was a mistake. The league did not intend for its original text to include only those minority groups. Well, that's obviously where the focus is, but you can't. I mean, it's against the law to say only these people from these certain groups or races or ethnicities can show up. Give me a break. Speaking of showing up. Elizabeth Holmes, you know her name, the Theranos woman who was convicted of fraud in that huge scam where she got so many people to believe in her company, including the media who, you know, put her on all these magazine covers as the next Steve Jobs. She wore these black turtlenecks the way Jobs did. And this was all exposed by a single Wall Street Journal reporter, John Carreyou. Uh, under enormous pressure, given that a lot of important people had invested money in Elizabeth Holmes' scam. Well, turns out she just made an attempt to flee the country. She was trying to skip out on her sentence. She bought a one-way ticket to Mexico. Um, She did this a year ago, January, and now prosecutors are trying to decide how to deal with this. They say, well, she should start serving her prison sentence right away rather than living on an estate, let's see, reported to have $13,000 in monthly expenses just for upkeep. Well, I I average about that. I'm sure you do too. Um, Government became aware that defendant Holmes booked a flight to Mexico, uh, but it still looks like she has a few more months before she has to report to prison. I don't know. Once somebody (laughs) is buying a one-way plane ticket, Don't you think that's a pretty sufficient reason to make sure that they don't have an additional opportunity to flee the country? It's just incredible to me that this is not a bigger deal or that she's not behind bars today. I'm looking at this story. It's framed as far as the impact on Canada, but it really comes from a scientific study. Canadian health officials have overhauled their guidelines for alcohol consumption. Warning that no amount, no amount is healthy. Recommending that people reduce drinking as much as possible. I remember about a week ago, the New York Times did a front page story on this, and everyone was like, oh, the Times. Leave me alone, will you? Drinking is supposed to be good for you, or at least in moderate amounts, right? So why is the Times spoiling all our fun? Well, it's not the New York Times, and it's not Canada. Uh, You you can believe this or not believe this. Haven't we been through this? Uh, It is pretty tiring, let's face it. Chocolate is good for you. Oh, no, it's not. Don't eat chocolate. Um, I don't care that much because I rarely drink anymore, but the experts who discovered these guidelines found that even small amounts of alcohol can have serious health consequences. So what they say is your risk is low if you have two regular drinks or less per week. And that can just be like one hard drink or beer. Uh, Your risk is moderate if you have three to six drinks per week. And it's increasingly high if you have seven or more. Drinks per week. Research shows that no amount of alcohol is good for your health, according to this new report. Doesn't matter what kind of alcohol it is wine, beer, cider, spirits drinking alcohol is damaging to everyone, regardless of age, sex, gender, and ethnicity. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that people are not going to stop drinking, but that's just me. Okay, you know, I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed and of the last few days, it seems like every third post is from somebody who just got laid off from a tech job uh, and obviously was not expecting to be laid off for a tech job. And, you know, when you read a whole bunch of these things, you think because, you know, Microsoft and these other companies are laying off tens of thousands of people. Vox Media is also laying off a lot of people. And I saw a lot of uh, posts from people saying, hey, I just got an email from Vox. and I don't have a job anymore. Um, here's a story saying that the company is putting itself up for sale. This is Vice Media now. Vox is one thing, Vice, which at one time was considered hot, and um, now it's got a new CEO who's just, who just says, Yes, it's been rough, and yes, we're trying to uh put the company up for sale, but we want to get a good price, and all of that. Vox is cutting about seven percent of its workforce, so you know behind every one of those statistics is a real person. And I saw a lot of people from Google saying that they had worked for the company for 10 years, for 15 years, and now we're being fired by email with 15 minutes notice, and then you get sort of locked out of your devices. It does seem sort of cruel and unusual. If you've put in that kind of time with a company and you've been successful enough to be around that long, is it really impossible for supervisor to call you in and talk to you about it in person? Is that just not the Silicon Valley ethos? It's kind of sickening. And it doesn't mean the economy is going to be dragged down by this, but it certainly doesn't help, right? So as I was doing Media Buzz yesterday, I got word that there would be a news conference, LA County Sheriff's Department, starting in our hour about this horrifying, just sickening mass shooting in Monterey Park California, and at the time very little was known um, because all we knew was that there was a male suspect that was all authorities have been able to put, put out, suspects still at large, and I very much tried, we did dip into the news conference, and I very much tried not to leap to any conclusions, but because this took place, uh, 10 people were killed, as you probably know, 10 other people were seriously wounded and taken to hospitals. Uh, at a ballroom dancing place in an Asian-American neighborhood of Monterey Park that was celebrating the Chinese Lunar New Year, it was hard to escape the temptation of saying this sounded like it could be an anti-Asian-American hate crime because the coincidence would just be too great. Well, it turns out, uh, I find out today, that there was a manhunt, that the suspect was tracked down, suspect then killed himself in his car before police could apprehend him. He's 72 years old, which is was which is just outside the usual age range, I guess I would say for angry people who decide to engage in these heinous crimes and and was himself some kind of Asian American. So was this a personal grievance or what was involved? No idea. It could still be considered a hate crime. Again, no idea. Authorities not sure what the motive is, but a lot more investigating to be done there. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. OK, story number one, could things be going any worse for Joe Biden on the classified documents front? I mean, every time you think it's over, more stuff happens. That's a technical term. And, and I, I mean, my jaws just dropped. They keep declaring, well, we've done the search. Search, search is over. Yeah, yeah you, nothing more to be found here. Yeah, It's not really a big deal. Nothing like Trump. And I've talked at length and written at length and talked on this podcast at length about how bad this makes Joe Biden and his team look, how it does look like a Keystone Cops routine. And so the latest happens, unbeknownst to all of us, all Friday for 13 hours, an FBI team, along with Biden lawyers, was searching his Wilmington residence. Sounds like at the invitation of the Biden folks. But remember, they'd already searched the Wilmington residence. Then they searched the garage, and they found stuff next to the Corvette. And so you figured it was over. 13-hour search, and and I'll read from a story that will maybe shed a little bit of light on this. But then they, the Biden people don't announce that another half dozen classified documents were found until Saturday night. Saturday night is when you put out news that you want to bury There's a reason that Nixon's firing of top prosecutors in Watergate is called the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, And so everybody wakes up Sunday morning and says, hey, more documents found. So I thought the search was over, but no, I mean, it just looks like they cannot get their arms around this thing. It looks absolutely awful. This after, of course, Joe Biden, you know, pounded Donald Trump, as did the media, For his, you know, he's the one who deliberately took documents to Mar-a-Lago, said they were his, uh, and then there had to be an FBI search warrant. There was no search warrant here. It was all done through voluntary cooperation, but nevertheless, the original decision by the FBI not to have any presence during these earlier Biden searches, is inexplicable. It's just dumb. It's tone deaf. So New York Times story says that Um, Biden's lawyers told DOJ in November they had no reason to believe that any copies of any records from his VP days ended up anywhere other than the think tank in D.C. This is the Penn-Biden Center affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania. But then it would turn out there was some documents at the Wilmington House. The mistaken premise, according to these sources, who spoke on condition of anonymity, of course, help us explain why the roughly seven weeks elapsed between Biden's lawyers searching boxes in the garage, that was on December 20th, and finding more classified papers. So there were apparently two batches. One batch was stuff that could potentially be classified that Biden might have wanted for lectures or book writing or whatever. The other set was supposed to contain no official records. It was supposed to be uh, campaign-related documents, old memorabilia, which are not covered by the Presidential Records Act, and those are the boxes that they believe were shipped to the Wilmington residence. So Bob Bauer, his lead personal lawyer and others, told DOJ they had no basis for believing the official records had gone anywhere but the Penn-Biden Center. Man, did that turn out to be a miscalculation. And here's the part that really bugs me, why I made such a point, and I played the sound that absolutely proved the case on yesterday's show. Uh, why many journalists are angry. They're not just turning on Biden. They're not just aggressively doing their job, which they should be doing all the time anyway. They're pissed off because they were misled. To this day, the Biden team has not been able to explain why the two-month delay. Um, And so we have a belated recognition that maybe uh, the boxes in the garage should be checked. Also, Biden's personal lawyers uh, were doing that. They found one additional classified page. And then it says everyone understood that now the government would have to come in and conduct its own search. Well, everyone should have understood that from the beginning. That's why you now have a special counsel investigating the president of the United States. And by the way, some of the papers that were found are not just from his vice presidential days, which makes a minimum of uh, six years old. Some classified papers found date to his Senate days. So you can make up your numbers since he was a senator for 36 years as to how long he has been in possession of some of this. And, you know, when Biden finally spoke, reading from a, a prepared statement when he was out in California inspecting storm damage and said, you know, we've done everything by the book and uh, I have no regrets. There's no there there which is taken from a famous quote from Gertrude Stein about Oakland when she was trying to find her old house, and it's since been repeated by many folks. You know, he should have some regrets. Look how badly this has been screwed up. Look, he should say, look, there's been some sloppiness here and I regret it. There's been some mistakes made here and I regret it. He should ask for people's sympathy even as as he if he wants to defend himself on the larger question of doing anything wrong. I mean to just say it just sounds like stonewalling. I have no regrets. If everything was done right, we wouldn't have a special counsel. If everything was done right, we wouldn't be in the situation where they keep finding new papers, extending the news cycle again and again and again. Drip, 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 drip. In fact, one of the biggest examples that I used on the show of how this really was an attempt to withhold information from the public, from the press and the public, was when CBS broke the story about the first batch of documents found at the Penn-Biden Center, and the White House confirmed that, and the White House knew at that time there was a second batch of documents in the Wilmington home, but they didn't say anything. So a day or two later, this comes out, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's that too. And it looks like a cover-up. It smells like a cover-up. I'm not saying there's anything ultimately there, although you don't know how broadly a special counsel will interpret his mandate. You know, that Joe Biden or his lawyers did something terribly wrong. But it doesn't matter. They are now in the same boat as Donald Trump. I don't think either will end up being charged. But again, you have two different special counsels who may pursue this in different ways. Story number two... Back to the uh, White House chief of staff non-drama. So Ron Klain had been Al Gore's vice presidential chief of staff. He had been Joe Biden's vice presidential chief of staff. He worked with Biden in the campaign, and he's been his presidential chief of staff for two years that we just passed the anniversary. I think that makes him the longest-serving chief of staff to a Democratic president, possibly ever. And these are backbreaking jobs, and he's known for working around the clock. And so... I kind of smelled this before this New York Times story appeared. And it was a story that said, look, Klein has had, you know, successes and setbacks. But by and large, you know, he came out of the midterms looking good. And Biden got a lot of bipartisan legislation passed. And, you know, basically the boss was riding high. But then came the classified documents storm. And in all the many, many, many stories that have been written talked about on TV and so forth. I did not hear the name Ron Klein. not that he was involved earlier, but that he wasn't, I didn't hear him in terms of um, how he was trying to manage it or limit the damage or any of that. And it's kind of like a black hole that said to me, he's he's preparing to leave there. I mean, it's not like it hadn't been speculated to some degree, but I could just sort of tell that he, was, he wasn't involved in this in any way. And maybe it's a good time for him to leave, Because now, you know, you're going to have two years of fighting with the Republican House. I will say that the tone of the stories, right after the New York Times wrote the story, it was very quickly confirmed by White House aides for the Washington Post, for Politico, for a whole bunch of other organizations. The tone of the stories was pretty positive. And here's the situation. Uh, Ron Klain is a more accessible chief of staff to journalists than many of them in recent years very fast on email, and that buys you a lot of goodwill. You know, somebody will talk to you on the record, off the record, explain their thinking, been on TV a fair amount. As the only guy there understood Twitter, who was provocative on Twitter, who was willing to engage on Twitter. I mean, Biden's tweets were so boring that it almost seemed like they were deliberately written by the Committee on Dullness. In any event, so late Saturday, I figure, okay, I'm going to add a little segment here because Klein is the biggest name in the administration and the biggest name to leave and has been such a loyalist. And one of my guests said, well, you know, he may just be taking a breather and then going over the campaign. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but he certainly has put in his time. And then by yesterday, I see another leak story, first from the Washington Post, and everybody's got it, about the new chief of staff, Jeff Zients. Now, he is such a behind-the-scenes figure that I'm not even sure that's exactly how you pronounce his name. Z-I-E-N-T-S, science. Um, I, went, I clicked on a bunch of videos with his name. Nobody was talking about him. Not that this wasn't news. I don't mean that. I just couldn't find somebody pronouncing his name. So he was in the Obama administration. He was in the Biden administration. He was, most notably, um, the guy in charge of the COVID response. And has a mixed record there. I think generally, is given high marks by insiders for doing well. But there was also that time when, remember, it was July 4th, and and Biden was walking somewhere, was at an auto show, and said, you know, basically mission accomplished. Didn't use those words, and it turned out it was not so accomplished. It was a, you know, one of the many, Omicron variant, surges. So. Zions is close to Ron Klein, who I'm sure had some role in recommending his successor. He also did a stint at OMB. He also did a stint at the National Economic Council. Now, he also appears to be very rich because if you look at the clips on him, you find out that he was involved as an investor, one of a number of investors, trying to buy the Washington Nationals baseball team um, about 15 years ago. So he doesn't have to worry about the paycheck. Um, You know... There are different kinds of people who can be a chief of staff. I think this is going to be an extraordinary low-key chief of staff. He's not going to go on TV much, if at all. I don't think he, I mean, clearly he doesn't have much political experience. What he is is, you know, a talented bureaucrat, a guy who knows how to run things behind the scenes. And that model can work just as well as a, you know, somebody uh, like a Rahm Emanuel as your chief of staff or somebody who is more of a household name. But it also means that you, while you don't get the credit for a lot of things you might accomplish behind the scenes, you also don't get the blame. Uh, So we'll see how he does. I mean, obviously Biden has confidence in him and has worked with him. And if he didn't do a decent job on the assignments he's had so far, obviously he wouldn't be coming the chief of staff. Uh, not the model I prefer, because I like being able to reach some of these people. But, you know, it's a very closed circle when you look at the names. People have been with Biden forever. And on this whole business of, you know, is Biden going to run again? And this is, gonna, is the documents flap going to hurt him? May delay it a little bit. He was never going to declare before the uh, February 7th State of the Union. Um, you know, I think this has given rise to doubts again about his age and all that. But, you know, as I've mentioned, I covered Joe Biden's first run for president in 1987. He's wanted this his whole life. I don't think you walk away, especially if you think you'll be running against Donald Trump and that you could be your party's strongest nominee. Now, if the nominee is not Donald Trump, it changes the whole equation. But then we're into all the speculation about uh, what will happen on the Republican side. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, Trump advisors uh, are working... Their are contacts with South Carolina Republicans try to drum up endorsements because he's going to have his first big campaign swing next week in that state. The problem for Trump is not just that a lot of people think it's too early to commit, but the problem is also that you have two people from South Carolina who may run. Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador, who I mentioned earlier, and former governor of that state, and Senator Tim Scott, who's clearly eyeing it would be interesting as an African-American Republican candidate for president. And so, you know, he'll have Lindsey Graham and and others, but it just goes to show you that this run may not be as much, I think it's fair to say it will not be as much of a slam dunk for the former president as um, some of his earlier contests. Not that 2016 was a slam dunk, but boy, he picked them off one at a time. And we'll see what happens this time. Number three, I don't understand this story in the New York Times. And I happen to be heavy on a lot of New York Times stories today. And by the way, you know, somebody wrote in about who cares about the Times and it's left-wing crap. Well, you know, I cover the media. And the New York Times is not only whether you love the New York Times, whether you hate the New York Times, whether you think the New York Times should be used to rap fish. I guess that's an outdated slur since so much is digital these days. It's an extraordinarily influential news organization with um, amazing depth and reporters around the world. When the New York Times breaks a story that people on the right like, it's like, well, look, the New York Times says this. When the New York Times breaks a story that people hate, it's like, oh, same old you know, propaganda left-wing crap. But you can't not deal with it because it also is incredibly influential on television. Take the same story, even if you have it in Politico, if you put it in the Times, it's, it gets a lot more play. It's treated with a lot more respect. Now, of course, it also depends on who the bylines are, but I'm just telling you. Anyway, so Nikki Fink was a Hollywood gossip columnist. She ran a site called Deadline Hollywood. She died last October, and she was very controversial. So there's this whole piece now revisiting her, I don't know, life and legacy. Uh, she gave good quote. Here's this uh, quote that she gave the Times in 2007. A scoop is better than sex. Um, but at the time that she died, she hadn't really published a scoop in about 10 years. Uh, here's what the story says: She could be rude, aggressive, high-handed. So it wasn't a shock that mixed into the respectful newspaper obits, there were harsh takedowns. An article published a day after she died, Richard Rushfield of the Ankler wrote, she was the equivalent of a restaurant whose toilets are gushing raw sewage into the kitchen while also serving meat, they fished out of neighborhood dumpsters. That was one of the kinder lines. Uh, Sharon Waxman, founder of The Rap, uh, published a piece called The Tortured Life of Nikki Fink, Best Friend, Worst Enemy, and Made for the Internet. Said she was driven principally by rage. And Waxman is quoted in the story. She was angry at how her life was turning out. She was exhausted from battling diabetes, angry that she no longer had the alluring looks of her youth while battling serious weight problems. Her life revolved around her and her cat and her computer, which she wielded with a vengeance. Um, Another guy says that she wasn't a monster after all. Uh, Ron Meyer, founder of the super powerful CAA, Creative Artists Agency, said she burned every bridge she could, but he liked her. My only question is this, like, why are we revisiting this? I mean, this is somebody who's mostly known to insiders in Hollywood. All these stories were written when she died. Here it is some months later, and she's getting both praised and trashed. It just seems so inside to me. Um, Oh, there's even an anecdote here about uh, one night she sounded so distraught over the phone that a friend of hers called the LAPD. Officers arrived to find her holding a large knife. She downplayed it, but she was in a scary place that night, said this friend. So uh, it's not exactly rest in peace. Let's put it that way. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four. So Maureen Dowd has this uh, column about Nancy Pelosi. They have lunch at the Four Seasons here in Washington. And it is just gushing with praise. And obviously Maureen's a liberal and she liked Nancy very much and has interviewed Nancy probably about 10,000 times. And as she quotes uh, the former Speaker of the House as saying, I wonder, Maureen, girl to girl, I keep thinking I should feel a little more. I don't know. Um, it's just that the time, uh, upward and onward, I'm thrilled with the transition. I think it was beautiful. Alexandra Pelosi, her daughter, is quoted as saying, I can tell you in my 52 years of being alive on this earth, I've never had the kind of weekend I'm having right now. My mother is at peak happiness. I've never seen her like this. It's like she's floating through the air. It's fascinating for my kids because they don't know this person. I think you want to enjoy being old. She's 82, by the way. I don't think you want to spend your final days fighting with Kevin McCarthy about how many seats you get on appropriations. Nancy Pelosi, Maureen writes, looked at me, brown eyes widening, and said, I'm sad for Kevin that he couldn't do that in a way that brought a little more dignity to the House of Representatives. It's strange. What happened was inexplicable. Um, She is described by a fellow California lawmaker as being satin and steel. That's a classic Pelosi trope. I asked the devout Catholic if she was praying for McCarthy. Uh, She said, yeah, I was. I was praying for the House. It was just stunning that he wouldn't be ready. You know what your challenges are. Just be ready. So the thing about this is, oh, she says, I don't want to see the job turn into something else. It has to be the speakership. It goes on and on and on and on. And it's just full of just, you know, long, long quotes from Nancy Pelosi and people who admire her. And I'll just say, I'm not here to knock Nancy Pelosi. She probably has been the most successful speaker of the modern era, not just of the female variety. That's in part because people like John Boehner and Paul Ryan, you know, by their own acknowledgement failed at it because they couldn't uh, sort of control their right wing or enter into some sort of alliance with their right wing. I just can't imagine seeing a long, warm, gushing, girl-to-girl talk piece about a Republican lawmaker, no matter how successful. I just can't envision it a lot in the New York Times, at least. It just is sort of the sweet spot of Nancy Pelosi, uh, a famous columnist who admires her very much, and just, you know, giving her as sweet a send-off as you can. And by the way, she's not going anywhere. She's still a member of Congress. Uh, And she says somewhere in the piece about she's not going to, you know, tell them how to bake the cake. She, they can only use her recipe, but she will be available to provide advice to her successor, Hakeem Jeffries. Okay, number five, which also concerns the politics of the House. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is that there's nothing I like better in journalism than figuring out a story before the rest of the mainstream media gets there. And that happened with me. You know, it's not like somebody slips you a hot document, a classified Piece of paper or something; those are important scoops too. And I used to be an investigative reporter, and I used to do all those kinds of stories. But these are more conceptual scoops, where you figure out you're putting, you're connecting the dots on something that ends up being really important. That's how I felt when I did my interview with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I got a fair amount of grief for that on Media Buzz when I when I did the interview because I asked her about her past embrace of QAnon, and I asked her about. Uh, her alliance with Kevin McCarthy and why she decided uh, as a former bomb thrower. And she said a lot of outrageous things in the past, of course, and I don't defend most of them, but she said to me and has said publicly that she no longer believes the crazy QAnon conspiracy theories that she once did. It's a couple of years really before she ran for Congress. Um, that she trusts Kevin McCarthy. That she wants to be a bridge between McCarthy and the right wing of the party, Lauren Boebert and others. uh, And that it's better to be part of an alliance where you can get to 218 and actually accomplish something than just be sort of, you know, being an incendiary force on Instagram. So I've mentioned this on the podcast a few days after that interview. The Washington Post had a big story about Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and now it's the New York Times catching up another week later. Days after he won the gavel in a protracted fight with hard-right Republicans, Kevin McCarthy gushed to a friend about the Iron Clan bond he had developed with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I will never leave that woman, McCarthy said. Sounds like they're married, but they're not. Uh, I will always take care of her. That would have been unthinkable in 2021 when she first arrived in a swirl of controversy and provocation. And they each each agreed to do short interviews with the gray lady. So McCarthy says, if you're going to be in a fight, you want Marjorie in your foxhole. When she picks a fight, she's going to fight till the fight's over. She reminds me of my friends from high school that we're going to stick together all the way through a relationship born of political expediency, but fueled by genuine camaraderie. Apparently, they have one-on-one meetings every week. They have coffee at his Capitol office. They text back and forth. And this is why it's important to understand MTG, whether you disagree with her or not, whether you think that she's changed or not, because she is close to the new Speaker of the House. And here is MTG quoted as saying that if he sticks to it, meaning McCarthy, it will easily vindicate me and prove I moved the conference to the right during my first two years when I served in the minority with no committees thanks to the Democrats. Um, Now she's on the oversight committee. So it's just, you know, it's easy to scoff. It's easy to sit there and say, oh, why are you even talking to this person? But you got to be open-minded, you know, without sugarcoating it, without um, whitewashing anything you got to be open-minded. And now that, so, you know, one after the other after the other of these major news organizations are just saying, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's a player. She's close to McCarthy. She, uh, she knows how to play this game. She's not just a bomb thrower anymore. Again, she throws a bomb tomorrow that I disagree with. I'll be right here on the podcast and maybe on the show talking about it. But if you just get stuck in the old stereotypes, then nothing ever changes and you're, you're just out of touch. So I like being just being able to see around the curve is the way I like to put it. And I've been doing this a long time. So I could, it was like I said, I could smell that Ron Klein suddenly wasn't in the mix anymore. Maybe he was going to leave. I didn't have that from a source. I just kind of figured it out. Sometimes I come up with these hunches and I'm flat wrong. And when that happens, I'll tell you about it as well. Again, hope you had a good weekend. Hope you had a chance to uh, see Media Buzz. If not, uh, many of the segments are online. Hope you'll subscribe if you're not already getting this in your inbox. And we'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.